Interesting, out of all the hymns to select, that one was selected by you all. If you have seen the show Amazing Grace, how many of you have watched that movie, uh, the work of Wilbur, 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 Wilberforce, William Wilber, Wilbur, William Wilberforce, um, in his work in England during the time of John Newton um, to eradicate slavery from the British Empire. And I would really encourage you to uh, watch that when you get an opportunity. Because it, uh, I believe, is an excellent, more modern example. I know it was a while back. More modern example of what we've been discussing throughout the, uh, this study, particularly this portion of it in First Samuel, uh, with regard to the Christian and the national government. We've talked about the government of the home, the government of the church, and we are looking at the government, uh, what we often think of as the government, meaning the um, people uh, the, that are ruled by a nation, the a political role there. And we are still, yes, we are still in First Samuel 8. And uh, you got that? We're going to still be there today. But, and you know, of course, if you've been here, that we haven't been studying First Samuel 8 directly. What I've been trying to do is give you example after example, because what First Samuel 8 describes for us is very radical to our ideas of rights. Um, and because we've been inundated from birth with the idea of personal rights, that we have individual rights, um, we have had that for 250 years in our country, uh, and, we, and that now has grown into the rights to choose, the rights to, of sexual orientation, the rights of children against parents. Um, we have a rights-saturated society uh, that is focused on personal rights, individual rights. And that was really goes back to our founding fathers, who really, um, more than any other generation, developed a philosophy of individual rights that they used as a stick to beat monarchical rights, the rights of government. And that has largely um, failed in respect to godliness and uh, fundamentally to government itself. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, in the midst of all of that uh, rebellion here in this continent, uh, William Wilberforce was fighting a similar battle, but he did it always with great uh, loyalty to his king. And... Uh, would not uh, tolerate any uh, idea of rebellion or of overcoming or, or dethroning him uh, and worked within a system. And granted, it, it took its toll on him and it took a lot of time, um, but successfully, without violence, was able to bring about dramatic change, not only in terms of slavery, but in terms of the educational system and other social benefits all along the way recognizing the rights of government. And this is what we are lacking, I believe, very much in Christendom today is a misunderstanding of just how long of a reach does government have? How much authority has God invested in them 
And this comes out, of course, in Romans 13, and we're going to be looking, hopefully, at that tonight. I've got a long ways to go. I'm going to try to cover a lot of territory, because I want to get us into the New Testament tonight. And so, in 1 Samuel 8, we have a list. God just says, here's what's going to happen. You get a secular king, a secular king, well, you get a king, not me. Your king isn't divine, but divinely appointed. And we're going to look at God's... uh, selection process here in the weeks to come. You get a king, here's what he's going to do. And you're not going to have a complaint before me because I'm not going to listen to your prayers. If that king goes bad and he does these things, he takes your children, he takes your property, he takes your your possessions, he even takes your liberty away. Um, I'm not, you don't have a prayer against me. I'm not going to listen to that Um, because once you establish that authority uh, over you, you choose that authority then this is the extent of what he can do. What that model, what, what, what a government uh, has permission to do. And we've looked at some examples of this. Because of the radicality of this position, and because we are, it's not really radical to us, I'm sorry, it's not really radical to the scriptures. And it's not radical historically. It is radical to us because for 250 years we've been inundated with a different philosophy a philosophy that focuses on individual rights. And that somehow the government is there to serve us and not us, the government. And yes, that sounds frighteningly close to uh, one of our presidents who said, hey, what you should ask yourself? You remember that guy? John F. Kennedy, the famous line? Ask not. Come on, help me out. What your country can do for you, ask rather what you can do for your country. And that is actually a much more biblical position than most Americans hold. And it's fascinating to see how little that ideology is present in our country today. Um, In the age of entitlement, (laughs) it's all about what the government will do for you. But Kennedy's statement actually has biblical foundation And that is that we are here really to serve government. Government has a role in our lives, and God has, but but they are the holders of the authority, not the people. That they have, that God has identified them as the authority um, to rule its people, and that rulership uh, can sometimes be oppressive, but ultimately, it's still for our good. And that sounds really odd because we resist that. And we looked last week at Joseph who was dealing with uh, submission and surrender and service to uh, those that were mistreating him. And after all that maltreatment, we still have him have a spirit saying, um, I'm going to serve the king, Pharaoh. He's not really my king because I'm not an Egyptian but I'm in this country, I'm a foreigner in a foreign land, he is the, the top man, and it is my responsibility to serve him. And I have no, no uh, inkling, well, he might have had an inkling with his dreams prior, but he has no expectation of, of uh, uh, the kind of reward that he was given by Pharaoh, um, and he certainly served Pharaoh. But we know that, um, as we talked last week, that one of the things Joseph instilled is a principle that we want to follow 
is that while I'm here to serve and bless my country, I am not here to assimilate into the country. That is, I am not here to be a citizen of this country. And so here, and this is, I mean, we're, we're really big into citizenship to serve in politics, but you do realize that in Egypt, Joseph wasn't a citizen and he was the guy running the country. And he was an Israelite. He was a son of Jacob and there was no national entity called Israel at this point. But uh, he's there serving as a foreigner, which had happened historically in Egypt in the past. Uh, through the uh, the Hiscox, the the Hickox, the shepherd kings that came in and and ruled in in there for twenty to thirty years, um, so we have this rulership by Joseph um, over the nation, even though he's a foreigner. But um, even as he served in this high level, he took steps to make sure that his family was a little isolated from the rest of Egypt so that they would stay intact as a people, that they wouldn't be assimilated, that they weren't, uh, though they were residents in Egypt, that they weren't Egyptians. And this is, I think, a very powerful testimony from last week that we want to carry into this week is to recognize that while we are called to serve and be a blessing to this nation, this is not really our citizenship. For the Christian, our citizenship is in heaven. And so we are serving here as foreigners. And when we talk about separation, um, of being separate from the world, that we are in the world but not of it, uh, we're not talking just about worldliness, but also about the identification of who we are. How do we identify ourselves? I'm an American Christian, I'm a Christian American. Um, are we somehow different than uh, uh, Christian Indian or Christian Chinese or a Christian uh, Dutch person? I mean, how do we identify ourselves? And Joseph went to great lengths to make sure that his people remained intact and identifiable as a particular group within the nation of Egypt. To such a degree that, of course, a few hundred years later, you have a pharaoh show up that doesn't know Joseph. He didn't learn. He didn't go to history class. Okay, when he was getting trained, he didn't appreciate the sacrifices and the power that Egypt possessed because of Joseph's work. And this brings us to the Book of Exodus. Our next example of People of God interacting with government brings us to Exodus. Before we get into it any further, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us, the opportunity to look in your word. We pray that you might direct us carefully through it and that we might uh, derive from it a philosophy of, of relationship with our world and each other and with you that is consistent uh, with your interests, with our declaration that you are Lord of Lords and King of Kings, with our declaration that you are the one who sets up and tears down kings and kingdoms, that these authorities are there by your command. And Lord, help us to, uh, in that endeavor, to develop that kind of thinking. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, again, we have conflict. The conflict is we have a government gone bad. Mistreating God's people. What should be the response? In Exodus, again, we're going to have these two scenarios laid out for us. The difference between uh, submissive disobedience. (laughs) Sounds weird to just say that. Uh, Submissive disobedience and rebellion um, that we see many um, almost getting to today in this land. Uh, Obviously, a pharaoh comes up that doesn't know Joseph, Exodus chapter 1. Most of you, I think, are familiar with this account. This is the introduction to where Moses is going to come from. And we find that here is an evil man, a pharaoh, that, that looks at this pretty large assembly now of distinct people within his country that have uh, uh, been blessed. God has blessed them mightily, uh, most numerically, and in wealth and livestock. And he sees that as a threat to his nation. He wants to take some steps to uh, insulate or to protect, guard his nation from uh, their insurrection. He is concerned about them becoming rebellious. He is concerned about them taking the side with their enemies to cast off his authority. He sees them as a threat to his authority. Now, we don't know why, if it was just, well, the Bible says it it was just that they were so many of them. There are just so many of them that they formed a threat in, and whether he had counselors advised him of that. Um, but specifically, he didn't understand the history of why they were there, who they were, and what they represented to, to Egypt. And so he felt that to slow them down, he needed to enslave them. And so he cast labor upon them, burns, they're going to be his city builders, and he enslaves them. And we have a phenomenal response of God's people. They permit themselves to be enslaved. Does government have the authority? Does the king, even though I am just a resident, not even a citizen, they have the right to enslave me. And I, I would contend that they do by, that's specifically what 1 Samuel 8 says that the king can do. He can take your kids and make them his servants. Um, he can even take your property. He can take um, your livelihood. He can, he can uh, do those things. And so we find Israel responding by simply doing the work. We're going to find them doing that all the way up, right almost to the very precipice of freedom, that they are going to try to do their work. The work gets harder and harder when Moses shows up, but they're still willing to do it. And we're not talking about for a year or two between this time of Exodus 1 and Liberty, there's over 80 years. Please think about that. That's a whole generation plus. For over 80 years, uh, we don't know how long that they were in this condition before Moses' birth, but we know that by the time Moses comes in and says, God says, let my people go, um, Moses is 80 years old. So, let's say between 80 and 100 years... Israel willingly allows herself to be enslaved under Pharaoh. We find no rebellion. We find no acts of, of even disobedience. They seem to fall in line, say this is the way it's going to be here. We've had a good run of it. Now they want to enslave us for whatever reasons. And they serve 
there. Uh, we find them still serving when Moses shows up 80 years later. They're still serving, building those cities for the king. The king's providing the materials, but they're faithfully serving those cities. But they are crying out to the Lord for deliverance. They do have a prayer to the Lord asking him to deliver them. That's going to come a little later than this right here. Um, and, but, so Pharaoh enslaves them. And it's really not enough. It, it doesn't slow them down. They still have lots of kids, even though you'd think they'd be too tired to have those kids. But uh, they're probably related to some of you people here. Um, and so, I'm not picking on the leechmen specifically. Well, yeah, I am. Okay, so, um, and we had a lot of kids. But we find them still being blessed by God. Multiplying, growing stronger. And so, Moses, our Pharaoh, of course, gives the edict that we're going to start killing children. And he does this, first of all, kind of um, underhandedly. He gathers the midwives, the, the health care workers among Israel, and says, um, you know, any baby boys, I want you to do a little abortive procedure at the delivery. Um, and so the instruction was that the midwives were to um, uh, kill every son that comes out of the womb. That's in verse 16 of chapter 1. That was their instruction. And in verse 17, but the midwives feared God. They have been given a command by the king that is morally reprehensible and would violate um, the desire and the will of God. And so it says they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. How they did that, they then explained it by saying that you know, the, the, those women have their babies before we can get there. They come up with an excuse when Pharaoh asks them what's going on. Uh, why are there still these baby boys running around? Uh, they show up when they're one or two years old, and the edict's been around for a little while. What's going on with this? And so we have these midwives. Remember, Israel is enslaved now by this Pharaoh, and we have this edict, and they're generally cooperative with what the requirements of Pharaoh are for them. They've been forced into slavery. They are, they are engaged in that activity. Um, but now the midwives say, well, now you're making us choose between God and what is right in God's eyes and this. We have a dilemma. And they choose to fear God and disobey the king. And yet, not in a rebellious sort of manner, simply saying we're going to disobey. We're going to face the consequences of that. And apparently there were some consequences. Um, and yet... God comes in and takes some of the consequences away. It says, therefore, God dealt well with the midwives. God blessed them. Pharaoh apparently was going to punish them, not by death, but simply by taking away their livelihood. And God says, I'm going to deal with them. And because they fear God, verse 21, God provided households for them. So they had... They had loss. There was a loss there that they were, they were punished to some degree by Pharaoh for not following his commands. Um, and in the end, God says, well, I'll take care of you. And there were households provided for these midwives to care for them. And God blessed them. God honored them for 
being disobedient. But again, it is not a rebellious disobedience. It is a disobedience that has uh, moral ground working. And to bring us into a modern time, uh, the distinction that we're, we're trying to deal with um, is uh, when the government tells us to not just fund wrong things, that's not what I'm focusing on. That's been the energy of the Christian community against uh, the health care law. Uh, but really about acting that out, of, of doing evil on behalf of the king. That at that point, civil disobedience is in order. If we fear God, we're going to keep his commandments. Um, and when we do have civil disobedience, we recognize that there is a price for that. If I'm going to disobey, I will pay that price. And I will do, not do it um, with 14 lawyers in tow and fight it all the way down. I will simply acknowledge I've done that. And here's the, the and we saw that with Daniel, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We have these examples, and even Joseph himself um, with Mordecai, Esther, uh, we find this attitude that says, well, if I, this is what I deserve, then so be it, but I'm still going to serve God, and God will deliver me. And so just as God delivered Daniel from the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego from the fiery furnace, so God delivers the midwives from being homeless. I mean, that was the... Uh, apparently, that was the result of their disobedience is, is their livelihood was gone. They were fired, basically, and were given no place to live and no, no means of, of having a livelihood. And God says, I'll provide households for you. Uh, so now the edict gets worse. And here this Pharaoh goes from enslaving them to, saying, to, being, to having this submersive, subversive way, this sneaky way of trying to kill the sons so that, you know, oh, you know, oh, this son died, you know, oh, he didn't make it through the birth. Uh, and having the midwives be accomplices with him. Now he's just going to be outright and make the declaration, we're going to throw these kids in the river. And apparently that was going on. Uh, we don't, we, we find that... Uh, Moses' parents are confronted with that same dilemma. Do we obey the law or not? And technically, they obeyed, didn't they? Technically, they did obey. They threw the kid in the river. It just happened that the basket they threw him in the river with was waterproof and floated. Uh, made a little boat out of it and tossed it in there and gave him to God. And again, out of this, God delivers this child. Uh, and is raised in Pharaoh's household. But uh, we again uh, struggle with, what do we do? Now, here is an evil Pharaoh who is making the life of Israel miserable. And the one that replaces him, that Pharaoh dies. Of course, Moses tries to take matters like we would have with violence, right? He comes on the scene with violence, wants to Turn the tables. The actions of Moses prior to his encounter with the God of Israel, Yahweh, before his encounter with Jehovah, um, he sees the injustice and says, violence is the answer. We must take matters in our own hands. And that is an act of rebellion, not only against the masters, not only against your government, but ultimately against God himself. Well, it's recognized that a violent response 
to an authority that God has permitted and brought into a power and has granted that authority to um, is an act of rebellion against God himself. And so Moses is found out by, of all people, he's ratted out by who? Not Egyptians. He's ratted out by Israelites. The Israelites are the ones that get him into trouble. They point and say, he murdered an Egyptian slave master. A taskmaster, he murdered him. Moses was ready to lead a rebellion. This is where he was at. And he was willing to engage in violence himself to do so. And I would contend that the spirit of Moses here, and before his encounter with Jehovah, is where many people in the founding of our country were at with regard to their king. We must take matters in the hand, and they made excuses for violence, and they found that that was the means that would be necessary to throw off the authority, and they did so by saying that that authority was not a divine authority. They undermined the Scriptures to give reason for entering into a violent encounter with one's government. And we're seeing many in the Christian community espousing that today. It is of deep concern that we are um, making statements that are in line with the NRA over, you know, you can take my gun when you pry it from my cold, dead hands. That is not a Christian value, brother, and I hate to tell you that. Here Moses takes an act of violence. He is identified as a murderer by the Israelites, comes to Pharaoh's attention, and he has to run for his life. He should be hung or executed, however way they would have done it, for that act of violence. And Pharaoh would have been righteous in doing that. So Moses runs for his life. That Pharaoh passes away. And a new Pharaoh comes into the line um, under the same thought pattern, the same ideology as the previous Pharaoh, but no longer seeking out Moses' life. And now Moses has an encounter with God. He's a shepherd. He's out there in the wilderness. He encounters a burning bush. We're familiar with all of this because we've all seen the movie. Okay? And we're pretty sure that Moses looked like Charles Heston. Um, something along that line, right? And so he has that encounter, and he is now confronted with the, the Lord of all the universe, the one who establishes authorities. And one of the things that God communicates to Moses in this, in this first conversation is the fact that he's heard the prayers of God's people. God is attentive to the prayers of those who are uh, unjustly under uh, persecution. He hears those prayers. You might say, well, it took him 80 years? Um, <laughs> yeah, God's time frame is a little different than ours. But Israel was developing. Moses was developing. And the other thing that we hear from God is that, um, listen, you're going to go and give my message to Pharaoh, um, but Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. In fact, I don't want him to listen to you because I have a plan to destroy him. And to destroy Pharaoh, I need him to 
be rebellious against me and my prophet. And so Moses is going to be obedient. And I want you to see a different spirit of Moses when he arrives in Egypt the second time. When he arrives back in Egypt, we don't find him being a man of violence directly. He's going to allow God to do that work. Let God be the judge of this Pharaoh. He comes in and he has a request. And the request is kind of puny compared to what God has intended to happen. God's intention is that Israel, in mass, leave Egypt, go up to Canaan, and, and be established as a nation in the promised land, right? We all know that. But here comes Moses, and he comes up, and he has a request before Pharaoh. Um, you know, we want to go out three days' journey into the wilderness and worship our God, and we'll come back. Now, if Pharaoh had just said yes to that, we wouldn't have gotten very far the purposes of God would not have been fulfilled. And this is a tough one, so let's work on it a little bit. We're not going to get in the New Testament. So I'm not going to get past Moses. I'm sorry. Um, the purposes of God are going to be fulfilled not by righteousness, but by unrighteousness. And that, not that God is responsible for the unrighteous, but it's going to be necessary to accomplish the fullness of his desire for God's people. So here's God's desire. I want my people in mass out of Egypt. I'm going to bring them in the promised land. They're going to conquer this land. Pharaoh, we're going to come with a request. And it is a request. I mean, Pharaoh can either accept or deny it, right? Yeah, he can accept or deny. The request is, we would like to go out into the wilderness three days to worship to our God uh, would that be all right? And Pharaoh says no. And he doesn't just say no a little bit. He says it emphatically and says, you must have too much time on your hands. So I'm going to make your work harder. Now I'm not going to provide you the materials. You're going to have to make, get the materials yourself and still make the bricks, still build the city with the same pace of work, with, including you going out and getting materials. And of course... This, the people are like, well, that's kind of impossible. How can we do that? And they confront the idea with, with the sense of, this is going to kill us. And they go to Moses and said, this isn't helpful. <laughs> God is preparing to do a wondrous thing for Israel on the very verge of the wonderful working of God is the darkest days of Israel and Egypt. The hardest, the most oppressive, the meanest times, the leanest times. And their response to that is what you would expect. It's like, ah! We thought you were here to deliver us and now it's gotten worse. And this is when God begins to produce the powerful working of His hand against Pharaoh. 
with the plagues that we're familiar with. But it begins by a man humbly coming up, saying, you know you have the separate people, you've enslaved them, their God has sent me as a prophet to say, let them get out in the wilderness and worship him, because if they do it in town, you will be um, disgusted by it and want to kill us all, which is exactly what Joseph said. And so we find that um, Pharaoh's negative response, making the life of God's people worse, was actually necessary for a wonderful act of God at the end of it. We all get excited about this movement of God and these, and these powerful plagues and then the Red Sea crossing and the, and the drowning of the chariots of Pharaoh and we applaud that but we forget that 80 years of servitude Israel willingly engaged in and they cried out to God when it became worse and then it got worse yet. <laughs> now, here's an evil man perpetrating evil against a pretty innocent people just like his forefather did. Yet God is at work and using that as a means towards God's purposes, which are to bring a great deliverance. There cannot be a great deliverance if there is not a great crisis. And I fear that for most of us, we are afraid to bring people to a great crisis. And because of that, we never, ever experience great deliverance. We're afraid to bring people to a crisis about sin and death in our evangelism. We don't want to bring them to that crisis point because it's uncomfortable. (laughs) Yet it's necessary if God's really going to deliver them. If you've never been brought to a crisis point realizing your sin and how horrible it is and how deep in trouble you are and how eternal hell is and, and what your state is and your conditions, if you've never been brought to the crisis of sin, you cannot ever have been really brought to full deliverance from sin. I'm convinced of it from Scripture. And so for the church, I, I would contend that until we enter into crisis mode, that we cannot really see full deliverance of the nature that God desires. And uh, sharing this week um, that this Pharaoh precipitated the deliverance of Israel. If this Pharaoh hadn't been evil, the purposes of God would not have been fulfilled for his people. Now I'm going to throw another name out there. I'm going to throw a name um, that just means horrific things to us. We've been trained about this name. Is a guy named Hitler. Adolf Hitler. Um, Whatever you believe about him and his rise to power and how he got that authority, um, that authority was governmental authority, and he derived that from God. 
How can God allow such an evil man to do so much evil come to rise to power? I want you to consider what the outcome of the Second World War did nationally for a group of Israelites. Without Hitler, I would contend there would be no nation called Israel today. It was out of that darkness, that evil, that crisis, that um, the nations realized we need to form a place for these people to call their own. And we can look at this Pharaoh and say, well, we should have slaughtered that government. We should have, well, we'll wait on God to do that. And similarly, we look at, at the Israel, at the Jewish people in Germany, and we see many of them slaughtered and, and easily identified on, on many counts. Um, but we also see a great deliverance there, uh, not of the individual. There are certainly individuals who, many of them, who passed away, who, who died in slavery in these 80 years um, as a hope for deliverance. Um, who are under the cruel hand of a government and they were submissive to that government um, and yet recognized that we weren't any threat to you. We had no intentions of taking over this country. We have another country that's our home. We, our, our homeland is the Canaan. And so as this evil Pharaoh brought forth the opportunity for Israel to form a nation in the land of Canaan, I would contend that in our modern era, we have such a figure. An evil man who was used of God, put in authority, I believe, because I believe God is the grantor of authority for all government, um, to come into power um, to create a, a crisis an intense crisis that led to a very powerful presence on earth of a country called Israel. That we all look at and say, 1948, you know, bam, prophetic calendar started getting set all over the place. Um, that, I believe, was a direct result of what happened in that war. Do we condone this activity of Pharaoh, the activity of a man like Hitler? No, we see it as evil. We identify it as evil. But we also recognize that um, ultimately God is, is, is at work. And he says that he is at work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So when the, when the prophetic word talks about a man of sin and Daniel that's going to come in and going to wear down the saints and is going to then finally move against them openly at some point near the very end, we see an enormous crisis situation there and we say, well, what should we do? And the heart today of Christianity because of the American influence of our forefathers is rebel. Get your gun build your bunker and arm yourself. 
That is the attitude. When, if we knew our scriptures well enough and we saw historically how God worked, we would rather prepare ourselves to endure the crisis with an expectation of great deliverance at the dawn. And that endurance is not fun. And people will lose their lives. And we are living in a day of extraordinary martyrdom and we hardly know it. And so we find in Moses, before his encounter with the God of Israel, a violent rebellion. After his encounter with Israel, a humble dependence. I'm going to trust God. If things get worse, that just means that Pharaoh's going to be judged by God more. (laughs) And we'll wait on God's hand to do that. And the church today would do learn well from these examples we have throughout the Old Testament. We're going to get into the New Testament next week. I meant to do that tonight, but I'm not going to happen in three minutes. Um, that Well, two, because we started them in early. Um, that we would do so well to learn from these and recognize that, okay, there may be, and, and certainly God's Word declares that there will be a crisis against the church, that it will be dark. It will be bleak. In Christ's description, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And the implied answer is, not much, if any. It will be a dark day. And the question is, will we take matters in our hands like Moses before he knew God in violent rebellion that is not pleasing to him? Or will we behave like Moses after he came to know God and humbly depend upon the Lord? And let the Lord fight for his own. And simply preach the truth. All Moses really did was go in and say, thus says the Lord. Right? Isn't that pretty much all he did? Thus says the Lord, let my people go. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. Oh, that the church would just respond to anything we see bad in our society with thus says the Lord. A humble dependence upon God and recognizing that He has brought these powers to bear in this land and in every land. And we trust in Him. And this message is true not just for Americans, but for everybody. And so I could easily preach the same message to Chinese people today, right? They understand the power of government. Did you see the article in the paper today? I don't know if you read today's paper. The Chinese government has loosened the screws a little bit on their people. Now, you're allowed to have a second child if you are an only child. Wow. See, it used to be only the rural people could have a second child if their first one was a daughter because they needed people to work on the farms. So if you were on a farm and you had a kid and it was a daughter, you were allowed to have a second one. That was the rule. Now, they have opened it up And this week, they have determined that any family who the parent, either parent is an only child, they're allowed to have two children. 
How would you like a government that comes in and tells you how many kids you can have? This message is valid for a Chinese Christian. Sorry, for a Christian living in China. See, I used that term and I didn't want to. For a Christian living in China. They're not Chinese. They're Christians living in China. They're our brethren. They're our countrymen. For a Christian living in China, this message is still there. Submit to your government. Cry out. You know, wait on the Lord. Trust in Him. Disobey when you have to. Pay the price for disobedience gladly and, and, and honor Him. We're going to see the disciples doing that in Acts next week. But recognize that they do have authority, and that authority is derived from somewhere, and that authority is derived from God. Romans 13 declares it pointedly. Every power that is is there by appointment of God. And so when we, when we rebel against that authority, we're rebelling not just against them, but against God himself. And how can we expect our prayers to be answered if we're rebelling against authority. And that's the power of First Samuel 8. When they do this thing that they do, and you want to rebel, I'm not going to listen to your prayers. You need to submit. And when you have to disobey, disobey. Fear me. Still do righteously. You can be righteous. Um, there were Christians being righteous in Iraq under Saddam Hussein. There were Christians being righteous in Syria under that government. There was Christians being righteous in Egypt. We talked about that last week. Um, They were submissive to their government. The government permitted them until we came in and messed that up. Now they're being slaughtered with our approval. With America's approval. Not with the church's approval. And So this is the force of do we trust God or are we trusting ourselves? Are we going to act like men who have never met Jehovah with violent rebellion? Or are we going to act like men who have had an intimate encounter with God and we're going to have humble dependence on God? Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your message. And the principle we see laid out again and again and again that you are still at work among the nations. And we have to apologize to you. We have to confess uh, the unwillingness to submit ourselves to government when we think it's gone awry or making our lives uncomfortable or expensive or hard. But we have nothing to complain about compared to what we've seen among your people in your scriptures. And so, Lord, give us a different spirit, a spirit that honors you by honoring the authorities you have put in place. Lord, we don't want to participate in in evil, in rebellion. And so we pray that our testimony might be clear to those around us in our speech, in our attitudes. It might be evident to all that we trust in you humbly. 
and that we will endure the crisis that you have promised will come before the dawn of your kingdom. Lord, we know that out of great crisis comes a powerful deliverance. And we look forward to that with great anticipation. Lord, give us a spirit to endure it without complaint and in righteousness and according to your truth. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.